people insist on a certain level of comfort in the discourse. And comfort for white people amounts to black people never challenging anything they do. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. In politics, it is often tempting to ignore the sins of your own side. If you are faced with a genuine threat from the other side of the political spectrum, if somebody like Donald Trump is president of the United States and gearing up for re-election, it seems prudent not to talk about the things that are going wrong among people who claim to be on your own side. But I cannot stop thinking that this is both morally wrong and strategically wrong. It is morally wrong because it has, as we can see in the United States in the last weeks and months, made mainstream institutions, newspapers, broadcasting, corporations, even some politicians, overly reluctant to speak out about the dangers, for example, of violent protests. It has allowed some of those institutions to let political extremists and radicals, many of whom, by the way, have so happened to be white, to use genuine protests for racial justice and against police violence in their own name. It is also strategically unwise because those citizens on whom elections still to a large extent depend, those who don't have a strong pre-existing commitment to one side or the other, will notice the reluctance to be honest about what's going on on your own side of the aisle, rather than failing to recognize that some bad things are happening because those institutions are silent about it. They will conclude that nobody will stand up to those abuses if your side of the political aisle wins. Now, there's been a big debate in the last few weeks about whether or not those fears might hamper Joe Biden's bid to defeat Donald Trump. Whether because of the reluctance of some of these institutions to speak very clearly about the dangers of Antifa, for example, Donald Trump might get re-elected. I take those warnings and concerns very seriously. I think to dismiss them, as many pundits have, is a mistake. But I also think that we should be grateful to the candidate of a Democratic Party, to Joe Biden, for not having fallen into the trap of so many of his colleagues, for not having, like Chris Murphy, the senator from Connecticut, for example, deleted tweets in which he criticizes looters and rioters, for having made crystal clear that he does not endorse or tolerate political violence. And as a result, more Americans fear that there would be greater violence in the United States if Donald Trump gets re-elected than if Joe Biden wins. So no, I don't think those mistakes by institutions and politicians are about to cost Democrats the elections, but that's only because Joe Biden has not been as influenced by the online discourse and by the growing consensus among some of these institutions as many other nominees of a Democratic Party might have been. And that, by the way, should make us recognize that for all of his shortcomings or weaknesses that people have written many column inches about, Joe Biden has genuine strengths and a genuine ability to read the mood of the public that helps to explain how he was able to win Democratic Party primary and why he still continues to lead Donald Trump in election polls at this point. Well, today it's a real pleasure for me to introduce a conversation with somebody I've admired for a long time. Elizabeth Anderson is one of the most significant contemporary political and moral philosophers. She's a professor at the University of Michigan and the author of important works, including The Imperative of Integration, a case for why integration should really be at the heart of how we think about race relations in the United States. The origin of this podcast is quite interesting. She wrote to me to my delight to say that she's a regular listener to this podcast, but to my dismay that she disagreed with the episode with Edward Irizarry about that New York City school board meeting, and in particular because she has quite a different interpretation 
of Robin DiAngelo's work. So we start the conversation with a relatively in-depth conversation about those questions and issues, but then really broaden out to talk about how substantively we can make progress towards uh, realizing a greater social justice in the United States and resisting the dangers that right-wing populism uh, poses to democracy. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Elizabeth Anderson, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on. Well, the pleasure is all mine as a great and long-time admirer of your work. So I've told the audience a little bit about the email you sent me. Tell me, if you will, where you disagree with some of the critique of Robin DiAngelo and some of the critique of this idea of white fragility, and perhaps most interestingly, some of the critique of the idea that there is something positive or generative about trying to instill a stronger collective identity in white people in the United States. As I've made clear in past podcasts, I'm quite worried about that. And it sounds like you think that that can actually help to push us towards a more fair multi-ethnic society. How is it? I think that there's a disjunct between how white people think one has to be in order to be not racist and how white people actually understand their own identities. So there is a story that circulates among a lot of white people, people who are not running around in progressive circles, that to be non-racist means you don't even notice race. And consequently, you wouldn't even identify as white consciously. Because to be non-racist means that you're colorblind. And then, of course, you can't possibly treat anybody differently on the basis of their race if you don't even notice race. Now, the problem with that is that American culture is absolutely saturated with racial stereotypes, racial imagery that reinforces stereotypes that have been around for centuries in the United States, stereotypes of black criminality, stereotypes of white purity. We absorb this from all over the place. And one of the messages of Robin D'Angelo's white fragility is that you don't even have to consciously endorse this imagery in order for it to have been absorbed by your brain and to structure your thinking. Most people are completely unaware of most of the mental processing that our brains are doing. It's all happening behind our backs. And it's highly responsive to stereotypes and imagery in the wider culture. So it wouldn't be surprising that out of perceptual habit, People are treating people differently on account of race, and the differences tend to fall pretty harshly on people of color and especially Black people. And there are lots of psychological mechanisms, implicit biases, and so forth we can talk about in psychology. But the critical issue is that white people insist on a certain level of comfort in the discourse and comfort for white people amounts to black people never challenging anything they do for being unfair or, you know, problematic in any possible way. Because white people treat that as an assault on their moral integrity, an attack on their honor. And then they start having meltdowns because they feel that they're being attacked as evil people and insulted and so forth. And really, the fundamental message of white fragility is just that white people have to learn not to have that response. Because if you turn the conversation away from a complaint that a person of color has about how things, the way, say, an organization is working is really not working well for them, and you always turn it into how you've been insulted and the center of attention has to be on restoring your honor, that response functions in such a way as to make it impossible for people of color ever to get a hearing. So it seems to me like we're potentially running two quite different things together here. One is a description of the existence of a denial of racism in the country, which does often take the form of saying, look, I didn't even see race, so why do we even have to talk about this? And on this, I think we agree. So the way that I think about this is that it's not easy to understand how our fellow citizens experience the world because they have experiences of disadvantage and discrimination that not all of us share. So for me, for example, I certainly don't experience 
the kind of sexual harassment or not in danger of a kind of sexual violence that a lot of women have to fear out there in the world. And if I said, oh, I don't really care about those kinds of issues, I don't myself do those things, and so I don't have to ever think about it, I would miss something essential, something important about the experience of women in our society, and I would be blind to a kind of injustice that they endure. And obviously the same is true in my relation to people of color, in particular in my relationship to black people. I don't have to fear the police in the way that, sadly, they in fact do. And if I simply say, well, I don't see color, so why should we worry about this? I'm missing something very important in their experience. So I too would reject that form of colorblindness. The question to me, though, is how we build a society in which we can overcome those things. And I don't think that all that D'Angelo is doing is to criticize that ideal of colorblindness. That may be one of the things she's doing, but so do plenty of more middle-down-the-road liberals. She does two additional things, which I find to be very concerning. The first is that she says, the answer to this is for whites to actually take on a collective identity, to actually invest meaning in their collective identity. To say, I'm capital W white, and this is part of who I am, this will always be part of who I am, and I should, in fact, realize that I have this essential thing in common with other white people. And that, to me, seems like the opposite of the ideal that you hold dear, for example, of integration. I think it makes it much less likely that we end up bridging our differences, having more meaningful conversations with each other, and so on. And the second element of this is about the model of political solidarity that is going on here where I think the model that a lot of people in this anti-racist discourse, and particularly D'Angelo, end up adopting is to say, I shouldn't come to share a set of political ideals with you on the basis of understanding the injustices you suffer better than I did before. It is to say, if you have a complaint, I'm not entitled to think about it rationally, to evaluate it from within my own value system, or even to evaluate it empirically. And that essentially means that there's always going to be spokespeople for another group who get to decide what those injustices are. And one of the ironies is that Robin DiAngelo claims to be the spokesperson for the view of the world that people of color have, and it's not clear to me what qualifies her for that. Because when you actually look at the polling, the views of people of color and the views of African-Americans are very complicated and all over the place, and it really depends on the particular issue, what they think. And so I both think this is the wrong model of political solidarity, and that it's frankly a ploy by people like DiAngelo to make their political preferences sacrosanct by investing them with the authority or the views of a group to which she, in fact, doesn't belong. Okay, so let's take these in order. First, about white identity. I just think that a lot of white people are very contradictory. (laughs) So they think they ought to be colorblind, and that's what they profess. But if you're a white person growing up in America, it's impossible not to have a white identity. You grow up in races everywhere, and neighborhoods are divided into good and bad neighborhoods, and a kid learns very rapidly that the so-called good neighborhoods are basically white neighborhoods. And if Black people enter it, then they're called bad neighborhoods. There's millions and millions of things like this. So it's impossible not to have a white identity. What D'Angelo is saying, you know, if you are white and you grew up in America, you're going to have a white identity. This is unavoidable because that's the way the cultural images of our society run. What D'Angelo is stressing is you got to be aware of what being white, positioned as a white person, racialized as white, means for you. And the only way you could learn that is by listening to how life is different for people of color, often very radically different. And that's a way so that you can help see how... Your patterns of thought don't really fit the situation of other people. The problem that arises, I think, is that unless white people come to see that they are actually viewing the social world from a racialized perspective that is not shared by everybody, then white people are all too frequently think, well, I'm just seeing things objectively, like without any racial perspective at all. It's these other people, people of color, like they've got a racial identity. So they're seeing things from a partial point of view. And D'Angelo is basically saying, look, everybody's got a partial point of view here because we don't have all the information before us. Now, as far as having ready-made solutions, I don't really see that. I mean, look, Black people themselves disagree within themselves about a lot of issues. There's a lot of Black conservatives 
they're not united about what to do. Look at Clarence Thomas. No, but that's precisely my point, that people like D'Angelo say what white people should do is to recognize that they all share this deep identity, to become more conscious of that identity, to make that identity more front of their mind, and then to ensure that they have a negative attitude towards that identity, which I find sociologically unlikely to happen over time, which is one of my worries about this, that once you tell people to embrace actively the white identity, they're more likely to imbue it with positive than with negative meaning. So I just find a theory of change here very likely to backfire. It's not so much that you should like feel awful about yourself because you've been racialized as white. I think it's more that you got to recognize that this is a partial and in many respects, ignorant identity because white people have been sheltered from the harsh realities to which people of color have been subjected. And so you can't speak with any confidence about the problems that people of color face. I think that's a useful thing to keep in mind. And again, I think that's an important point that I agree with. It just seems to me that your point about the existence of black conservatives, in fact, the polling that shows that if you just look at voters for the Democratic Party, we tend to think that black voters are going to be more left-wing or more progressive than white voters, which is untrue for very obvious reasons, which is that if you're a conservative white person, you're likely to vote for the Republican Party. If you're a conservative black person, you have good reasons to nevertheless vote for the Democratic Party and to avoid the Republican Party. They're still quite conservative. And so as a result, the average black Democratic voter is more conservative or less liberal than the average white Democratic voter. Here's two different models, right? One model is to say you don't naturally understand the experiences of your fellow citizens. When they tell you about injustices they encounter, you should listen very carefully. But then you should integrate those facts into your own value system, into your own aspirations for your society, and come to a principled political solidarity, which is to say, I don't want to live in a society in which a large percentage of a population is discriminated against in terrible ways because of the color of their skin. And so it is because of my own commitments and my own views that I'm going to stand in solidarity with them. I find a lot of the discourse by people like D'Angelo to be quite different. It is to say you will never be able to understand your fellow citizens fully. You always have to defer judgment to them. And so therefore, whatever the more oppressed group asks for, you need to go along with. And part of the implicit assumption here is that there is a coherent construction of what the more oppressed view demands. And the political heterogeneity, which you pulled attention to, precisely gives a light to that because African-Americans don't have a collective view of what we should do politically because they have very, very different ideas, for example, about whether we should defund the police or whether we should actually make sure that areas get better and obviously more just, but also more robust policing. There's a huge variety of views about that in the African-American community. And it is not clear to me what it would even mean for me simply to defer to black people about those questions, because thankfully, they are not a cohesive monolith with one cohesive view on that. Yeah. So I read D'Angelo differently. And I don't deny that there are many white people who have read D'Angelo in exactly the way that you read her. But I read her differently. What I hear her fundamentally is saying is to white people, open up your ears and prepare to listen seriously to people's testimony about their own experience, which might lead to very uncomfortable conclusions about the existence of racial injustice in your country, in your organization, in your behavior. What to do about it is a separate issue altogether, right? How you actually come to terms with that injustice isn't at all dictated by the fact that you have to seriously listen to what people of color are saying and not just rise up your defenses of who you are and your personal honor. Rather, the idea is if you really are non-racist, you got to be anti-racist. And that means you have to be prepared to work together with people who are suffering injustice sometimes even on the basis of behaviors of which you didn't realize were hurting them. But that means you got to listen to their input. It's not that they are dictating particular solutions. Solutions always have to be worked out together. So what I see D'Angelo doing is prepping the ground 
for a serious dialogue and a respectful dialogue and exploration of how we're going to solve this problem together. I do think it's incumbent on white people to acknowledge that there's an awful lot of problems here. Now, the nature of it and how it's operating requires input from people who have a different experience. But what we end up doing together, that is something we have to work out together. And that's why I think D'Angelo, by identifying the way white people rise up their defense mechanisms, is actually posing an obstacle to moving forward with solutions, is a prelude to working together to figure out what to do to manage these problems. In D'Angelo's case, she's mostly looking at dysfunctional organizations, workplaces of various sorts for the most part, and how they're not treating people of color well. And what can we do? How can we make the situation better? If you're a person of goodwill and you want to make sure that everybody has a good experience in the organization, then we can think together about how to make the rules, the norms, the processes within the organization work well for everybody. So I'm starting to think that the core of our disagreement is on the reading of Robin D'Angelo rather than of what we want to happen. So I'm going to ask you a last question about D'Angelo, and then we should probably move to a more substantive conversation of what the right solutions are, where I think we might have more in common. But I do want to dig in on this, which is that, you know, you say that she doesn't want people to be defensive. But there's two elements of this that really worry me. The first is that there is an element of irrefutable circle here where if you disagree with her on anything, that is proof that you have white fragility. And so you cannot, in fact, have a reasoned disagreement with her, certainly not in the context of some of the trainings she gives. And basically, you either agree with everything she says, and there's some you know, controversial claims in what she does, or you're a racist. And that, I think, speaks to the second concern, which is that if you freight everything with such meaning. And again, this is not coming from people of color who say, hey, I experienced this as a really hurtful statement. It is her imposing this on a situation. And then you are a racist. And one example of this is that she says, if you interrupt somebody and you're white and the other person is a person of color, then that is bringing the whole apparatus of white supremacy to bear on them. And it is a racist infraction in that interpersonal relationship. Now, you know, I think every friendship in the history of the world has included people interrupting each other, has included people completing each other's sentences and jumping in and sometimes disagreeing with each other when they get excited in a conversation. If you freight interactions with that significance, and again, this is not a person of color saying, I felt disrespected in the moment. It's D'Angelo saying, if you do that, you're being racist. A, it seems to me that that makes it much, much harder to have friendship between people. If people really concluded that every time somebody cuts them off in a friendship, they're being racist towards them, it makes it much harder for them to actually build a significant friendship. And B, I think it is a kind of con, because it is precisely creating the counter-reaction, the fragility that she then writes about. You know, I call you a racist for interrupting somebody, and then if you become a little upset by that, I say, oh, look, you're not willing to do the work. That seems to me like a con. Yeah, you know, I guess I just have a different reading because <laughs> obviously in the context of a friendly conversation, people can complete each other's thoughts and they can get really excited. And a lot of the interruption is kind of, oh, yeah, I had that experience too. Isn't that cool? Whatever. And I don't think anybody complains about that. What she wants to make sure of is that when a person of color has a complaint, you can take the patient's to just listen seriously and not immediately try to refute or counter what they're saying, but just listen to their experience. And again, what you should do about that remains open. And then you have a conversation about how you can make people's experience in an organization more responsive to their perspectives, you know, how the organization runs. It doesn't mean that suddenly they become the boss and they dictate exactly how everything's going to go. It's just you got to open yourself up to the idea that, yes, the organization has to be responsive to the interests of everyone. And that requires getting input from everybody's perspectives. Now, I do have reservations about D'Angelo's use of the term racist. Within academic circles, you can use that term. It has uses. It's useful in various ways. 
But in discourse among non-academics, that term is so capacious, and it also has such an extreme negative valence attached to it, that it just raises people's hackles. And, and yeah, you could put people in a seminar and teach them this other way of using the term, which is very unfamiliar to the vast majority of white people. But the difficulty is that it's precisely the capaciousness of the term racism that confuses most people because it's not precise enough to identify what's gone wrong. And I think it's much more useful to have a more differentiated normative vocabulary so that you can be more precise about what the problem is. Because a lot of things in the academic sense count as racist, a lot of which don't involve any kind of nasty intentions at all, but you're just going along with rules that, you know, maybe decades ago were set up to serve white people's interests and have this huge negative impact on black people or Latinos, and no one's cared to change the rules so that they're more fair and equitable. And you're just going along with the rules, not because you even know about these impacts or care about the impacts, but just because that's just the way things have always been done around here. <laughs> right? So you don't have any conscious racial thoughts, or you not, might not even know about the differential racial impact of these rules. But the rules, in fact, do favor white people over other people. And one of the reasons why they remain entrenched is that white people are still in power in these organizations. And so they're very comfortable with outcomes that favor them. And they're not thinking too hard about how other people experience the way the rules operate because they have a different impact on them. So, you know, in academic sense, you're racist if you go along with these norms. But in the popular sense, in the culture, you're only racist if you consciously want these bad things to be happening, <laughs> right, to people of color. And you could argue to the end of the world that, oh, we're using this term in a different way that doesn't imply that you're evil. <laughs> but I think it would just be much more useful to differentiate actively hating people because of their race and a whole bunch of other ways of behavior that have inequitable consequences, differential impacts by race that don't necessarily involve animus. Yeah, my concern about that use of the term racist is neither that I want to deny that structural racism exists, which it clearly does, nor is it to say that this shouldn't be uh, at the heart of some of our political concerns. But it is, you know, three things. A, the way in which it understandably raises people's hackles. If you say, you know, the SAT is racist, it just seems to confuse two different issues in a way that is designed to maximize people's defensiveness. So if you're actually interested in people not being defensive, that's not a helpful way of putting that. I think we agree on that. It's that racism just has such an extreme negative charge to it <laughs> that people will get really defensive. But if you say that the use of a certain test has an inequitable differential impact on people of color, okay? And we could come up with a better way of selecting people for college than the SAT that wouldn't have this impact. Okay, well then why should anyone think that this is something inherently objectionable or that they're being personally attacked when you suggest that? No, exactly. And so that's a more productive conversation. Just one more thing on this, which is that I think a different harm of it that we haven't discussed is that increasingly people don't just run together these two different definitions, which has the impact of raising people's hackles and which also has the impact of us being incapable of making important distinctions. The kind of way in which the SAT is arguably racist, I don't know that or not it is in fact, inequitable in its impact in that way, and the kind of way in which the KKK is racist are just vastly different. And if our vocabulary doesn't allow us to express that distinction, that's a huge choice. But the third problem, I think, is that increasingly people in parts of academia, but also people in our activist circles, have not just run those two concepts together, but they have rejected the existence of the first concept. And that is certainly something that Robin DiAngelo does and that Ibram Kendi does as well, which is to say that they not only say we need to have this very, very capacious understanding of racism, in which the SAT is racist just as much as the KKK, they end up with a definition of racism which actually actively rejects the classic definition of racism. So 
I can be full of hatred against somebody, but if I am not part of a dominant group, then that's not racist. And it's just idiots and racists would believe that that's racist. And that to me is really, I hate this term, but it is entering the realm of gaslighting. Yeah. And again, I think that the problem here is that the term racism is way too capacious and they want to use the term both as a kind of capacious descriptive term, but then limit its normative application just to like white people. And there's a lot of problems with that. One problem is that any kind of system of oppression, one way or another, is going to exploit the kind of quasi-consent of those who are oppressed by the system. At some level, they have to be perhaps coerced to go along with it, but there are always people who actually get some benefits by being enforcers. Hmm. And so you're saying black people can't be racist. Well, in fact, they could be some of the enforcers. I mean, there are black cops, for instance, who, although the statistics suggest they're not as violent as white cops, are still more violent in majority black neighborhoods that they're policing than if they're in majority white neighborhoods. So at some level, some of them are helping to enforce racism. So they're participating in the racist system. What makes you think that you can't be racist against your own group? But even leaving that aside, I've written this book, The Imperative Integration, in which I argue that a just society has to be a racially integrated society. That racial segregation in itself is a severe obstacle to justice because it's a severe obstacle to realizing democracy. And it doesn't mean that you cannot have racially differentiated spaces in society. But integration means that the mainstream institutions and organizations of society have to be ones in which a central norm is the promotion of cooperation across group identities on terms of equality. That's what integration is. Intergroup cooperation on terms of equality, hopefully with the end of creating common identities. So even within an organization, you can all have an identity of being part of that organization. And that's going to cross cut other identities that one might have, including identities of race and gender and so forth. I identify as somebody from University of Michigan. I'm part of that community. It's not as racially integrated as it ought to be, but there's some racial integration. And I think that I have a duty within University of Michigan to promote integration within the university. And by that, I mean, not just the physical presence and participation, opening up of opportunities to people of color, but actual cooperation on terms of equality across racial identities. And that can create another kind of shared identity. At the national level, that's the identity of being a common citizen, In America, we're all Americans, okay? And a national democracy means we have to be working together to make a better country. I love that book, by the way, and I wanted to talk about that next because I think when we come towards formulating that positive ideal, we probably have a lot more common ground. And as you're emphasizing, that does have to involve both a recognition of inequality and injustice where it exists and remedying it, But it also does involve this creation of common identities that don't ignore those differences, but that emphasize a different dimension in which we have something in common. What might some of the steps look like if we want to create that, if we actually want to serve the ideal of integration, whether it's in a context like the University of Michigan or whether it's in a context like our polity in the United States as a whole? Well... I think a critical issue here is we have to be talking to each other. At the heart of any robust democracy is that we're talking across group identities and listening seriously to each other about the full diverse range of experiences that people have within the organization or at the national level in our country. And speaking sincerely and listening seriously to what all of us, each of us, has to say. And getting used to the practice of seriously listening to people who 
are coming from a very different walk of life from oneself. That, I think, is just the heart and soul of any kind of democratic practice, of any kind of integrative practice. It starts from people talking about their experiences and that we can hear each other's concerns, share concerns, and then within an organization that has a specific mission, like if, you know, your university, the mission is education, then we can talk about, say, how to revise pedagogy in the classroom so that it includes more voices, so that it encourages participation of students who, for one reason or another, feel left out or under-recognized or maybe interrupted. Have you been part of conversations like that at the University of Michigan that you found to be generative and productive? Or perhaps if you've been part of some of them that have been more productive and some of them have been less productive, what made the difference between those? Yeah, you know, I have been part of such conversations. And the remarkable thing is that when you actually get people who teach for a living, get together and talk about pedagogy seriously, you can really learn a lot. <laughs> I don't think we talk enough about pedagogy, but when we do, I find it regularly productive. And talking to students too, you learn a lot. Some time ago, I would teach this very large lecture course called Law and Philosophy, which satisfies a distribution requirement for the undergraduate liberal arts college called the race or ethnicity requirement. So University of Michigan, I participated early in my career getting this distribution requirement instituted where people actually had to take a course in which they learned about race and racism and how that works in different societies. So I created a course that satisfied that requirement called Law and Philosophy, and we cover a lot of the history of legalized racism in the United States, how that works, famous Supreme Court cases. And early on in my career, one of the things I noticed when I launched this course was that Black students were sitting in the front, right in the front, like the first couple rows. And as you know, often the first couple rows are usually empty, right? And the students sit a little bit further back. <laughs> and I was talking to one of the Black students in the class, and he told me, oh, yeah, you know, we're doing this to show everybody else that we're serious students. And that really struck me because they're actually actively countering a racial stereotype by doing that. And that shows that, okay, now they feel like they actually have to, like what white student thinks that they have to do that? It just gives you a different perspective on what's going on and how students are experiencing their college career. That's fascinating, yeah. What about the more political level? What do you think if we want to actually advance integration in the United States, make sure that we have a better understanding of each other and hopefully closer relations with each other at a political and personal level? What are some of the policies and some of the institutional changes we should make beyond something like university campus? Yes. Well, you know, as you know, right now, the political culture in the United States, like in many democracies in the world, the culture of political discourse is extremely toxic because a lot of it is telling people that their main problem is these other groups in their own society. People, you know, fellow citizens, like they're horrible people. <laughs> We see this on both sides. You know, in America, both the Democrats and the Republicans are telling stories about how awful the other side is. Hillary Clinton talked about the basket of deplorables. And then, you know, on the Republican side, you have people who are comparing Black Lives Matter with ISIS terrorists or think that they're racist because, you know, what? White lives matter. What do they think? Are they arguing that white lives don't matter? Right. And so you have this incredibly polarizing discourse, which is reinforcing a sense of radical mistrust, distrust across partisan lines and racial lines, lines of immigration status, religious lines, Muslims being stereotyped, often Jews. And it's creating a toxic atmosphere that is very corrosive to democratic practice. 
And then if you have a politics in which you think the real problem of society is these other people, you know, the members of the opposite party, then you think there are existential stakes in every election. And so you're willing to break any rules. If you think like your own group is under grave threat, you're willing to break rules in order to make sure that your own group has power. I'll just give you some insight into how extreme these beliefs are. My husband is a physician who works in Dearborn, Michigan. He has a very diverse patient panel. He's got a lot of whites. He's got a lot of blacks. He's got a lot of Muslims. Southeast Michigan is the site of the largest concentration of Muslims in the United States. A lot of people from the Middle East. Some of his co-workers are Syrian, for instance. And he told me, some time ago that one of his patients was a white Christian evangelical preacher who seriously thought that if Democrats took power, they would be stuffing Christians like him into concentration camps. Who knows where he got this idea? But he was terrified. Now, if you think you're going to get stuffed into a concentration camp, what are you going to do? Right? You're going to pull out all the stops to prevent that. You know, that's why he was voting for Trump. Obviously, we have a terrible situation. If people believe stuff like that, they're going to think the Democrats are the most evil people out to get them. And so you, you can do anything to stop that. That's where we are now. And that's very corrosive of democracy. So where do we have to get to? A situation where we can actually speak to each other and listen. And this is why I think I have some slight reservation against your persuasion project, because it's all about argument. I don't think Americans in general are ready for argument. What we have to have is testimony. That's where people just sit down and talk about their lives and open up in ways that other people can actually listen and hear what the experience of others is like, where people are speaking from the heart about their experience. It's not about larger scale policy arguments about principles. It's just about experience. That's where it all begins. And here I'm coming at this from a pragmatist perspective that was inspired by John Dewey. And he always stressed that democracy starts with experience, with personal experiences, ordinary citizens talking to each other about their personal experiences, about how life is going for them, about the impact of policies and institutions on their lives, about problems they're experiencing. And then we get together and maybe we find that from these conversations that we share some experiences, or maybe we have different problems, but with the same policy, <laughs> right? Or the same institution. And then we can work together to improve it. But it starts from experience. My worry about starting with arguments or high principles is that it's premature. And especially the argumentative mode is often feels like a debate where there's a winner and a loser and people are arguing from fixed positions. Whereas Dewey was always centering moments of indeterminacy and uncertainty where we're not sure what the response should be, or we're not sure even about the diagnosis of the problem. It's before we've arrived even at a description of what our shared predicament is. It's precisely that moment where democracy and democratic discussion is most vibrant because that's where we have to get together people from different walks of life listen hard to each other and construct a conception of what the problem is rather than already having that fixed. Because if one person or one group already defines the problem for you, chances are the definition of the problem has excluded some important experiences that other people are having. Those are the precious moments and that's where we have to learn to start talking to each other. I'd love to get to the bottom of this sort of slight disagreement about persuasion, though. And I guess my sense is that we're currently in a political moment where we need to vindicate certain principles and defend certain principles for the kind of exchange you're talking about to be possible. Part of my concern, part of the reason why I signed that Harper's letter, for example, is that I think when we are in a political situation in which 
sharing your genuine beliefs and experiences might cause you to lose your job. You feel that actually speaking honestly about how you see the world is likely to engender such tremendous, not just criticism, but in many cases, misrepresentation of what you think or shorthanding that, you know, if you say that when you're a bigot or you're whatever else, then you're not likely to share your experiences. And for that kind of exchange you're talking about to be possible, people have to feel comfortable bringing their real selves to the conversation. And of course, that is historically not been true of many members of disadvantaged minority groups in the United States who didn't feel like they could actually speak honestly about their experiences and the injustices they live with without risking angering their boss or angering the company they work for or angering their co-workers or their neighbors. And that demand of inauthenticity is, I think, a great injustice. But certainly in certain progressive spaces, there is now such a script of what you have to say and believe on 20 or 30 different issues that people can't bring their own authentic selves to the conversations either. And we actually have uh, an article in Persuasion that shows that the percentage of Americans who say that they regularly self-censor when we talk about politics has gone up from about 13% in the 1950s to something like 47% in 2015. So I guess what I want to say is that we need to fight for a change in the culture, which includes a vindication of principles like the idea that you shouldn't be fired for saying something with which some of your co-workers might disagree in order to create the space where the kind of conversation that you aspire to, and that I also think is very important, is actually possible. Yeah, I'm glad you raised that because I've written this other book called Private Government, which is basically an argument that the constitution of the government of the workplace is a dictatorship, and that's a real problem for workers. <laughs> And I argue in that book that workers need, they need a voice within the workplace so that they have some power to structure workplace norms in ways that are responsive to their interests. But I also argue that you have to put strict limits on private government with respect to off-duty lives. Like you shouldn't be subject to firing because you have some lifestyle that your boss doesn't approve of or that your fellow employees don't approve of. And one place of application of this argument is I do think that employers should be limited in their rights to fire employees for their opinions, even if their opinions are obnoxious. Now, there are some cases where I think they can. If you are a CEO you're effectively a spokesperson for the corporation. And you could say something that goes against, you know, the corporation's own commitments, and you could be fired for that. But the ordinary line worker, nobody thinks that some low level worker at a corporation is speaking for that corporation. And so if they say something that the corporation or that fellow employees don't like, Certainly, if they're doing it off-duty, even if it's really obnoxious opinion, I don't think the employer in general should have the right to fire him. Now, I do think that there are even some exceptions there. I do think that, say, if a police officer who has a strict duty to obey the law, including the 14th Amendment, equal protection of the law, is going off on racist rants and social media... It is a just inference that you can't trust this guy to apply the law equally <laughs> and to offer equal protection of the law. So I do think there are going to be some exceptions where you can justly make an inference that if they're going on rants off duty, that they're probably not fit to serve in the duties that they have on the job. But there's not a lot of cases like that. You know, if you are, say, a Coca-Cola bottler, Okay, and you're just tending the machines that are bottling Coca-Cola, and you say some obnoxious racist thing on Facebook, I don't think the employer should be able to fire you for that. And once you have that rule in place, then the employer can say correctly that, look, I don't have the power to fire people who say this. It's really none of the employer's business what they say. And so you can't hold it against the reputation of the firm that there are employees like that at work. Yeah, I think that that second point is a really interesting one that I was thinking about as we were talking, that in a way, a law like that makes it easier for the employers to hold that line. Because as long as you have that will employment in the United States, 
and you can fire somebody for any reason, you know, people can semi-legitimately say, well, look, if you don't fire your employee for this speech, it must be to some extent because you're endorsing that speech. I think that's obviously collapsing an important distinction, but I can see how people can make that argument. If, in right. fact, we have better legal protections for employees and they involve the protection of your speech in private settings as long as it doesn't imply that it will impact the way you do your job, then the company can very easily say it doesn't in any way imply our own values, we couldn't fire this person if we wanted to. And so, you know, we should not see this as imputed speech of our own. I think another context in which some of those things might be true is that we should think about legislation to protect free speech of employees of companies and for that matter, athletes and so on, when it comes to authoritarian powers around the world, including China, where organizations like the NBA run into this problem that if some of their players or coaches criticize China, the regime in China will punish the whole NBA for it because it imputes the intention to the NBA to share those sentiments. Right. Yeah. If we had legislation that prohibits the NBA from punishing players or coaches or team owners for those kinds of statements, then the NBA could go to the Chinese government and say, look, your problems with the American government. We can't do anything about this. And that actually empowers people to speak up. I think it's a very interesting area for that. I want to make sure in closing of the conversation to touch on a topic that's obviously of concern to me and that I know is of deep concern to you because of some wonderful lectures you recently gave, which is populism. I think you have a very interesting theory of both what has helped the rise of populism and the ways in which we can hopefully bring people back into the democratic fold by insisting on fact, but doing so in a way that is respectful of our fellow citizens. What does that look like? Yes. So I've been thinking about populist discourse and how it works. And a huge amount of that discourse is deeply symbolic. So populism isn't fundamentally about delivering certain material goods to the people who feel like they lack representation in the current political order. It's rather giving them symbolic boosting that they should be at the center of the polity and that they have been unjustly neglected or demeaned by the other side. So the focus in particular on right-wing populism, which is the dominant mode of populism in the rich democracies today, the feeling is that basically the center-left parties, social democratic parties of Europe or the democratic party in the United States, that they have put the interests of white working class people behind the interests of all these other groups, people of color, immigrants, Muslims. You can go on, list some trans people, LGBT people in general, and that these straight white Christian workers, right, have been neglected. Now, there is an element of truth to that. If you look, say, at the cultural centers, of America. There are in big cities like New York City and Los Angeles that are extremely diverse. And the TV shows reflect that. But one place where they're not diverse, like they very rarely depict rural people. They rarely depict seriously religious people, you know, people with a deep Christian identity, like that's not too common. Or even just people who don't have a college degree. Right, people yes, who don't make right. a lot of money. I'm, I'm really struck by the evolution of American television in that sense. If you watch Cheers, which is actually, I discovered recently on Netflix, I think quite a charming show in many ways, it is very socially integrated. I mean, you really have people from genuine working class people to, you know, the snobby Harvard grad student, but it's not at all racially integrated. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's completely monochrome. And then you go to something like Modern Family or, you know, The New Girl or all kinds of other shows that are very popular today. They are very racially integrated and that is a genuine progress, but they are socioeconomically completely monochrome. They are all people who are either have college or graduate school degrees or have the lifestyle of people who do even though sort of notionally they don't. Yes, that's a really great observation and it fits very strongly, the general argument that Thomas Piketty, the economist, has made in his latest book, Capital and Ideology, about the evolution of center-left parties in the rich democracies. 
So he argues that over time, from the post-war era to the present, they have all moved from having their base primarily in working class people who don't have a college education. And over time, they've created a coalition that basically combines the highly educated with various marginalized groups because all these center-left parties are rainbow parties. So they want to be inclusive and non-discriminatory towards marginalized groups in society, whether those groups are defined by race or ethnicity or sexual orientation, or immigrant status, or minority religion. And he shows the data is stunning. I mean, it it applies internationally, not just to Europe and the United States, but to India and Brazil. It's very wide ranging. And the patterns are absolutely striking, because all of the center left parties have moved in that direction. His argument is that that's given an opening to right wing parties to appeal to the sense of grievance that basically the national ethnic majority working class is relatively neglected because there has been an erosion of their economic status and a lot of economic policies have kind of locked that in with the decline of the power of labor unions, the adoption of international trade regimes that favor capital over labor. A lot of economic policies have run against the working classes of the rich countries. And then they also find themselves being decentered culturally and the center left parties focusing on all these marginalized groups and not really paying a great deal of attention to working class issues. It's been very striking in the United States. Like labor unions have had their own agendas and Obama really didn't do a whole lot. Well, his Congresses didn't do a whole lot to advance labor interests with new legislation. And so you have the sense of being neglected and that grievance then gets magnified by right-wing populists. And what they offer often is symbolic goods, lifting up these groups that feel resentfully neglected and saying they are the true nation, they're the real people, not these elites who are unjustly favoring all these marginalized groups over you and letting them skip ahead in line, right? It's stoking resentment, hostility, fear of the other. And the goods that are being delivered are very symbolic. It's lifting them up in the esteem ranking, the social esteem ranking above all these other groups. And so it's an inherently divisive and toxic mode of discourse because it depends on sowing distrust across the diverse groups, between the diverse groups in society. And once you have that distrust in your mind, you think that whatever the other side says is some kind of way to insult you. Then you feel entitled to dismiss whatever they say as fake news. Like any criticism of Trump is fake news by definition, right? And then you just get to dismiss it because all they're trying to do is insult you. That's the only reason why they're saying it. And Trump has even turned the pandemic into this. Like pandemic statistics, the rates of COVID. You know, the Democrats are just talking about the pandemic to make Trump look bad. It's pure spite. It's just the flu. It's minor. But Democrats are making a big deal about it. Never mind that we have about 150,000 deaths and counting in the United States, right? <laughs> the difficulty with this symbolic discourse is that it never gets down to reality, which is you got almost 150,000 deaths and counting. What about people who are dropping dead? Shouldn't we be paying attention to this? But instead, the discourse isn't about that. It's about who's being insulted by even paying attention to this issue. And that makes it impossible to advance democracy if you have a discourse in which people think that the other side has to be immediately dismissed out of hand because all they're trying to do is put you down and insult you or embarrass and shame you. So the socioeconomic evolution of center-left parties or left-wing parties is really fascinating. In Europe, it is particularly clear parties like Germany's Social Democrats used to win a huge majority of a working-class vote and now win a very small sliver of the working class vote, but do actually win not just the votes of certain minority groups, but a very large percentage of the vote, for example, of uh, urban professionals, where they have competition from the Green Party in Germany. 
But when you look certainly at the left of center parties as a whole, uh, there's been this very strong evolution. And the native working class has often gone from voting for left wing parties to voting for the far right. So they are now the biggest reservoir of votes for parties like the Alternative for Germany or the FPÖ in Austria or Le Pen in France. I guess, just as we close out this conversation, I would love your thoughts on what to do about that or how to change that. Because implicit in this causal story, that it is because of the abandonment of economic issues that the cultural issues have become so salient, is the suggestion that we should simply go back to talking about economic issues. But it seems to me like at this point in time, the issues that really carry, the issues that people really care about have become cultural. And I'm far from convinced that simply starting to talk about economic issues over cultural issues is going to focus people's minds on that. In fact, a lot of voters might say, hey, but the stuff that I care about is these cultural things. And we don't want to talk about this. If you don't actually want to echo what I'm feeling and saying on some of those things, then you're not actually interested in where I'm at. So how do you think non-populist political forces should respond to the new political landscape in order to beat back those populists? Yeah, I think that's a great way to frame the problem because Piketty thinks that if we just go back to an economic agenda for the working class, we'll be good. And I disagree with him about that in part because, well, in the United States, racism, for instance, has always been endemic, (laughs) right? And so you can't think that, oh, People will just give up on that once you start talking about economics again. The grievance is deeply symbolic. So one thing it does mean, though, is that Democrats have to, in the United States now, just thinking about the American context, Democrats have to be thinking seriously about the plight of people in rural America. One of the features of this extreme gerrymandering that's taken place in the United States is that the districts have been drawn by Republicans in many states to give it an advantage to rural districts and also deliberately to cut Democrats out from any kind of competitive position in those districts and to make it seem that, well, they're only speaking for black people because they're coming from these big cities. It was quite deliberate and designed to alienate white people, white working class people from the Democratic Party. But it doesn't stop Democrats from actually trying to compete for these votes by just going out and listening and talking about the genuine problems that rural people suffer from. And here's the important point, is that right now, for instance, if you look at the opiate crisis in the United States, it has a differential negative impact on white people in rural areas. Here's an interesting opportunity for learning. Okay, in the 1980s, everybody was talking about crack cocaine, which was disproportionately being consumed by blacks in the inner cities. It was a highly racialized discourse. And hence, you get all kinds of arguments for hyperincarceration. Now that white people are suffering from the opioid crisis, and these are working class white people for the most part, although not exclusively, now we can actually open up a useful conversation about imprisonment. Does it really make sense to throw people in prison for illegal possession of various opioids? Well, I think white people are actually softening about this. And that opens up an opportunity to rethink mass incarceration, which has a terrible impact on people of color. Like there could be some common ground here. But first, you have to have sympathy, right? You actually have to listen carefully to the plight of white people in rural areas who are suffering from serious drug problems, and then think together and help them reason by analogy and see that, well, look, if they think that their brother, say, shouldn't go to prison from this, what should they think about Black people who are serving long sentences for drug possession who are in prison? Well, maybe it's time to rethink that. You see what I mean? It's possible to build common ground. It's not as if the problems that white people and people of color suffer from are always absolutely different from each other. In fact, there's a lot of common problems. Same with labor issues. The point of stressing them is, of course, to get economic justice, but it's also you want to frame the problem in such a way that white working class people can see that they actually share some interests with people of color who are actually overwhelmingly working class. That seems to me like the perfect note on which to end the conversation, which is that 
part of the fight back against populist parties maybe to have an economic set of policies which can create real hope for the future in the working class that often now feels despair and fear about the future. Right. But also to help them look at their experiences in a way that enables them to imagine common experiences with groups that they fear, that in fact, that they share that. Exactly. That the realization of the ideal of integration about which you talk so eloquently requires us to emphasize not just the things that divide us, but also some of the things that we share. Yeah, exactly. Elizabeth Anderson. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. 